Hello, friends, and glad we're together as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. Today, we're in the second half of chapter 20. The scene, the resurrected Christ has appeared to his disciples three days after being crucified. As the disciples gathered that first Easter Sunday, Jesus' message to them was simple. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As Pastor Char Burson tells us, God is sending us out with a message that sins can be forgiven, we can be reconciled to Him, and that He is making all things new. That and the importance of regular church attendance as we join Pastor Char for a message he's entitled, John's Great Commission and a Gospel Rhythm for the Church. So we are, man, we are coming to the end of this incredible gospel. And I don't know about you, but just the way that we've been able to kind of plan this out leading up into Easter, it's not accidental, just so you know, that we are looking at the follow-up to that first Easter morning this morning. I think this is appropriate for the church when we think about what happened 2,000 years ago on that Easter Sunday, that we think about what followed that, how Christ met with his disciples, how he commissioned them, how he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's very appropriate that this morning, this is what we're going to be looking at together. Uh, sometimes I kind of have this issue with Easter. Um, I love Easter, let me just say that first, but this is my issue with Easter. Uh, the church historically has spent 40 days in the season of what's called Lent, and in Lent, we mourn our frailty, we mourn our brokenness, we mourn uh, the state of the world, and what we actually enter into is Jesus' journey to the cross. And so we spend 40 days doing this, just contemplating our brokenness, contemplating uh, the need for salvation. And then, you know, we come to Passion Week, and Passion Week is beautiful, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday, bang! And then Monday, everybody goes on vacation. And maybe that is appropriate, I don't know, to go on vacation, to just celebrate and, and live in the peace. But to me, I often think about, man, like, we just spent 40 days mourning and one day rejoicing? This seems a little off-kilter, doesn't it? And so, once again, I just think it's so appropriate that here we are, we're looking at the aftermath of the resurrection and what Christ um, commissions his people into since he is victorious over the grave. Now, I'll remind us, as I often do, that John has written this gospel with a specific purpose in mind, and he actually writes in this very chapter, chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as I say each time, John has written this for disciples. His desire is that we would live into Jesus and that we would experience such a quality of life in Jesus that we are witnesses of life in the name of Jesus. This isn't something that we have to strive to be. This isn't something that we have to conjure up, but it's a living reality. 
We live in such a way, this life in the name of Jesus, that it oozes from our lives. It simply flows out from us. And people that we run into, interact with, also experience a quality of life through us. That really is John's desire. You know, John is an evangelist. And he's not an evangelist in the sense of that this is directly to people to believe. I don't think. I think that this gospel is actually written for the church. But it's so the church might live into the name of Jesus and be a sign, maybe even John's final sign of his book, of the work of Jesus. And so that's actually what we find as we look at this 20th chapter, the Easter morning. We find actually John's great commission. And that's the first thing we want to look at this morning. Now, as I've been saying since the beginning of our teachings, John has written his gospel with a specific purpose in mind. He's told the story of Jesus quite differently than what we refer to as the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so since John has done this, I really think that we need to take John's gospel as a stand-alone work. And it would seem that John actually intends his audience to understand this appearance of Jesus to his disciples on that Easter morning as both the Great Commission and Pentecost. Now, some people might have issue with that. I get it, right? 50, uh, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. That doesn't line up. But what I'm trying to say here is the commissioning of disciples to go into the world to make disciples of all nations. John doesn't include that language in his book like Matthew and Mark and Luke do, or Luke does in Acts. He has it right here. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And that's it. John is a standalone work. Now, am I saying that what happened in Acts didn't happen? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying John has written the story a certain way, and I think that we have to submit to the way that he has written this story. So here... On that Easter day, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he commissioned them and he breathed on them the Holy Spirit for their mission to the world. Now remember, Jesus had previously told disciples, I think back in John 15, he said, when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. I don't know if you remember, but back in our study, we were talking about how the work of witness is a partnership with God. The Holy Spirit is testifying and disciples testify. We partner with the Spirit to continue the work and mission of Jesus in the world. And so now this moment is here, right? Jesus has finished his work. He has been exalted through the cross. He has been buried. He has resurrected from the dead. And now that moment is complete. It's accomplished. The risen Jesus now stands in the midst of his disciples, declaring his peace, 
showing the signs of his atoning work through the cross and commissioning the disciples by breathing on them the Holy Spirit. Now, an interesting thing about this language that's used here, that Jesus breathes on them the Holy Spirit, is that John is intentionally using language from Genesis 2 when it talks about how God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. And if you were here on Easter morning with us at sunrise in particular, if you are that committed to get up and be here, anyone? Yep. What we talked about was that John is actually framing this whole Easter morning as the beginning of the new creation. It's there in a garden early in the morning on the first day of the week, and a woman is there weeping, and then the gardener approaches. All of this is John painting the scene of a new garden, a new creation, a new woman, a new man, and just the beginning of all that God will do. And so John, again, is picking up this new creation language as he talks about the Holy Spirit coming on disciples, breathing into them a breath of life. And it says in Genesis that man became a living being. And so we should understand even in this moment that the disciples are becoming living beings, new creation to declare the new creation that Jesus has inaugurated. So Jesus breathes on them and says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. We have talked about this again and again in the Gospel of John, but just as Jesus was sent into the world to make known, to reveal the love of the Father in both word and deed, now disciples are sent out in that same identity and mission now, I thought it fascinating that here in John's gospel, he talks about forgiveness of sins, where in the great commission of the synoptic gospels, we read about discipleship, right? Go into all nations, make, make disciples of all nations, teaching them all things that I've taught you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But here in John's gospel, Jesus says this, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, of course, we as humans do not have power to forgive people's sins ultimately. Only God does. But because of what Christ has done, as Jesus' disciples, we are sent as the agents, witnesses of the victory of Christ to declare and apply forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to the world. This is our message. Your sins are forgiven you for Jesus' sake. Now, I remember years ago, I was living up and ministering in Santa Rosa. There was a college pastor from another church that used to love to go down with a whole team uh, to our Wednesday night market. I was downtown, you know, all these vendors would come out, and he would love to do street preaching down there. And I would often pass by him and listen to him, and I kid you not, every week his message was the same thing. He would get up there, and he would just tell everybody, you are sinners, and you are under judgment. And that was it. And he would do this again and again and again. There were quite a few people in the crowd that were trying to dialogue with him a little bit. Like, they knew the Christian message. They're like, hold on a second. Wait, I think you're missing a piece, right? He didn't want to hear it. And one time I actually had the opportunity just to sit down with him and just be like, okay, so let me know. Like, what's your 
philosophy of ministry? Like, what are you after while you're doing the street preaching? And he told me that basically he saw himself as an Old Testament prophet sent to give the bad news and to convict, or, you know, just to give the bad news to people, and it was the Holy Spirit's job to convict people and to rescue them. So, first of all, just a bit of a misunderstanding about the role of the Old Testament prophets. But let me just say this. Church, this is not our mission. It's not. Jesus didn't go around preaching the bad news that people were sinners and in danger of judgment. This is true, and he did often go into that when people were rejecting, right? He talked about the Pharisees, the judgment that was coming upon the religious leaders because they had rejected the word of the Lord. They rejected God's deliverer, but Jesus went around preaching the good news. That's what he went around doing. Jesus' message in ministry was one of inclusion, Forgiveness, love, reconciliation, restoration, justice, and peacemaking. Uh, theologian uh, that I love to read from is a guy named Michael Bird. He's from Australia. He described the good news this way. This is beautiful. He says, the biblical gospel, or good news, is a justice-bringing, sin-forgiving, slavery-crushing, illness-healing, debt-remitting, low-status-reversing, sin-cleansing, outsider-including, and truthing-to-power good news. That is our message. As the Father has sent Jesus, now Jesus sends his people with this message. The good news is that people's sin, their burdens, their failures can be forgiven that they can know and belong to God as dearly loved children, that they can become a new creation and join the cosmic story of God's redemption. Uh, this last year for seminary, we had to read a book by Andy Crouch called Playing God. And it's actually a book all about power and how we redeem power and use it in the way that God uses it to do good in the world. But it's interesting, he was just talking about sin and how many preachers and churches are actually obsessed with telling people how sinful they are. Listen to this. This is interesting. He says, original sin is the only Christian doctrine that is empirically verified. Our neighbors may not believe in a fall, but they cannot deny that something is terribly out of joint in the human story. At the other end of history, modern science has made it clear that progress is not just a historical fantasy, but a physical impossibility. Thanks to the second law of thermodynamics, the total amount of disorder in the universe is increasing. And one distant day, the universe's vast reserves of information, energy, and order will be dissipated in a great and final sigh, followed by an everlasting silence. True, this cosmic story ends not in fire, but in ice. Although some models leave open the possibility that the universe will collapse again upon itself in a final fiery burst of annihilation. But the ultimate loss of all things is not in doubt. The vision of a sulfurous, consuming lake of fire is an eerily apt metaphor for the eradication of history and meaning that is assured in the world as we know it. 
He goes on just to elaborate on this, but listen to what he says. So a story that begins in sin and ends in judgment doesn't just fail to be good news. It isn't news at all. You know, the ancient world actually believed, especially the Greeks, they believed that the world was cyclical and actually that the, it would end, like epics would end in like this fiery explosion and then just time would begin over again. It is actually a Christian doctrine that believes that time is linear and progressing to a new creation, and that is only because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As I said last week, Jesus has changed the course of history, where the world by itself on its own would end in a fiery, you know, massive explosion, Jesus has changed the trajectory that now it ends in new creation. Crouch goes on to say, it tells our neighbors nothing that they cannot figure out on their own, but the Bible story is a story of good news, both good and news, both unexpected and unexpectedly hopeful. It is good news about the end. The astonishing claim is that the world will not be forgotten or left to its own decay, but rescued and remade. Church, we have a message of good news that Jesus has imparted and entrusted to us to share with lost, broken, sinful people in the world that their sins can be forgiven for Jesus' sake, that they can be reconciled to God. This is the teaching of the Bible, that humanity is not essentially sinful, but lost. Think about when Jesus tells three parables, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, he tells them all back to back, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. The picture here is of God who has lost something near and dear to him. And so sweeps the whole house, looks, moves everything around just to find that one lost coin. And then once it's found, rejoices, gathers everyone around to rejoice and to celebrate over the coin that was found. Or there's the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to find the one, and then the same thing is the result, right? Gathers around everyone to celebrate what was lost is now found. And then the same is true with the parable of the sons. Two lost sons. One returns home. One, the father goes outside to bring him in. This is the heart of God, to reconcile people to himself to reclaim what was lost, to rescue and redeem it, to bring humanity back into his side, into this holy partnership with him, to bring them in as sons and daughters. The good news is that God is making all things new, working all things for our good, and that the best is yet to come. This is the message that Jesus has imparted. As the Father sent him, so he sends us. And he sends us with this message, forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. Now, that morning, 
the gathered disciples met with the risen Lord Jesus and experienced his peace. They saw the signs of his cross. They were empowered by the Spirit and sent on the mission of Jesus to tell the story to anyone who would listen. As the Father had sent Jesus, so Jesus was sending them. Now, an interesting thing that is like this theme or hermeneutic through the Gospel of John is this idea of identity, uh, the identity of Jesus with the Father, and then the identity of disciples with Jesus. And this is this kind of like high theological term called theosis. But you remember those passages where Jesus is describing that he and the Father are one, that he only does the things that he's seen the Father do, that he only says the things that the Father has told him to say, and he's using this language where you just wonder like, okay, is this you, Jesus? Is it the Father? I am super confused. And then I read the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, and then I'm even more confused, right? Three and one. One, but there's three different individuals, right? Like, and I think, though I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, let's make that very, very clear, it is our best way of understanding the identity of God, and yet there is a unity and oneness that exists between Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father where the lines are very, very blurred because Jesus is so caught up in the love and the identity with the Father. Jesus, the beloved Son, takes upon himself the burden of the Father to rescue and redeem the world, to bring back what was lost. When Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, we should carry out that same idea. How will people meet with the risen Lord today in 2023? And in the years to come, how have people for the last 2,000 years met and experienced life in the name of the risen Jesus? By theosis. That's how. Because Jesus sends us out in his identity and his mission, empowered by his spirit. And when we walk and we talk with people, when we bear their burdens, when we affirm that their sins are forgiven them for Jesus' sake, it is as though God were pleading through us. Paul says this, imploring the world, be reconciled to God. Church, we are sent out, as it were, as parables of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I remember reading this book years ago called The Art of Pastoring by a guy named Dave Hansen. And Dave Hansen is a fly fisherman on the side. He's a pastor by day, fly fisherman by morning, I guess. Um, and he had this beautiful picture of what it means to be a parable of Jesus. And he uses this whole imagery of fly fishing and how he makes these flies. And they're not real flies, but they look like flies. And they imitate flies and all of their movements and these things to get the fish to take the bite, right? And he talks about how a parable is a story or a picture that makes an unthing, or excuse me, an unknown thing known. So he says, you know, as we read the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is the parable of the Father. Just as we were talking about this theosis, that Jesus comes with the mission of the Father and the love of the Father, doing the works of the Father, saying the words of the Father. Jesus is the parable of the Father. And now we are sent out 
as parables of Jesus. And so even as we have read through this gospel, the woman at the well who meets and talks with Jesus and discloses her deepest desires in this conversation, so Jesus sends us out in his identity, his mission with his spirit to have one-on-one face-to-face conversations in which people will meet with Jesus himself. This is the great mystery of the gospel, or one of the great mysteries of the gospel, that God takes up residence in our lives and works through us And that actually when we share the life that is in Jesus' name, when we share this good news, it's not really us sharing it. It's what Paul said. It's God himself in us, through us, reaching out and touching lives just as he did when he walked the paths of ancient Israel. How will the resurrected Lord meet with people today? Through his people, as we, through imitation and participation, continue his work in his way. Just like the stories of this gospel, one-on-one conversation, having their lives lives touched by his kindness and his grace, being offered living water for their soul thirst, being offered forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to the great God of love. This is how we are sent out. In the identity of Jesus, in the mission of Jesus, in the power of Jesus. Now, my message this morning, I think, is relatively short. I just have one more point that I want to make, and then we're going to wrap things up. So I think that John lays out his great commission for the church. And here's the question I think we need to ask ourselves. If this message, that sins can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled to God, that what was lost can now be found, rescued and restored. If this is the most vital information in all of history, church, how do we keep it as priority number one? Especially in a world filled with counter-offers, of what is satisfying, of what we're looking for, vying for our attention and our affection. How do we keep this message, this identity and mission always before us? And I believe that John has actually laid out a rhythm for the church. And I think what the early writers of the New Testament believed is in this kind of flex that the church would experience, that the church would gather together and then the church would for building themselves up and then the church would scatter with the message of the gospel. And this is actually what you saw the early church doing again and again, that they would gather, build themselves up in those most holy faith and then they would scatter in witness and in mission. And I believe John has actually laid this out for us right here. And you might have read this a hundred times, but maybe have missed that John seems to give us a liturgy for the gathering of the church. Well, what is that? Okay, well, here it is. John records it on the first day of the week, 
the disciples gathered. What is the first day of the week? Say it again. Sunday is the first day of the week. The disciples are gathered together, and Jesus shows up right in the middle of them. And what happens when Jesus shows up? He speaks his peace over his people. Not only that, but he shows them, reminds them of his wounds, his hands, his side, his victory, his suffering, the forgiveness of sin. He speaks his peace once again over his people. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit and commissions and sends them out to the ends of the earth to make known this message of the forgiveness of sin. We didn't read it in the passage this morning, but in the next verses, there is one disciple who is missing from this gathering. You guys remember who it is? Thomas, yeah. And what do the disciples say to Thomas? We have seen the Lord. Church, I think John means this to be the weekly rhythm of God's people. Now, in our culture, in Western culture, that is so very individualistic, we tend to overemphasize the personal aspect of our salvation many times to the neglect of the cosmic. God is making all things new, restoring all things. And the communal, God is concerned with a people and not only individuals. And because of that, we see the gathered church on Sunday as something that is optional to our faith in Jesus and to our discipleship. And I've often talked with people about this, and they say, okay, so you're telling me that somebody who's in, you know, solitary confinement can't experience Jesus. I'm saying, you're not in solitary confinement. That's not even what we're talking about right now. The point is, you won't gather with God's people. Why? Because I don't have to. Okay, there's a lot of things you don't have to do. Is that really how you want to live your life? I feel like I'm talking to a teenager, right? <laughs> now, we see the church gathered on Sunday morning as something that is optional to our faith, to our discipleship. And of course, please don't misunderstand me. Part of this was reclaimed in the Reformation, right? The Reformers rightly emphasized the priesthood of all believers. They rejected that salvation was only administered by and through the church. But along with that, we lost this reverence. We lost this enchantedness. We've become disenchanted with the church with the gathering of God's people on the first day of the week. Now, let me just clarify in case you misunderstand me. Can we gather anywhere, anytime as God's people and meet with the Lord? Absolutely. The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. I believe that the Christian life is one where we live always before the face of God, that we practice the presence of the Lord, that he goes with us everywhere we go. Absolutely. He abides in us and we in him. I'm a firm believer in this. And yet, for the early church and John the Apostle, they firmly believed that there was something uniquely special about the gathering together on the first day of the week. What is so special? As the disciples gather on the first day of the week, 
Jesus shows up in the middle of them. There is something unique. The scriptures celebrate this again and again. Yahweh, you inhabit the praises of your people. The church is this holy temple made of living stones being built upon one another in which the Spirit of God inhabits us and we lift up praises to God. This is the vision from all of Scripture that God does something uniquely special in the midst of a people. And it is not just individuals who bear witness to the kingdom of God, but a people, a community who practice the way of Jesus, who practice the love of God. The first day of the week, of course, is significant, not because it was the weekend. You know, the first century world did not have a weekend, did not have a day off. The first day of the week was significant because it was resurrection day. Not because it was Sabbath. If anybody ever tells you that the Christians switch Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, you just take them right back to here. John 20. Acts 20. This is not what was happening. The Christians met on the first day of the week because of this. Because on that very first Easter Sunday, when the disciples were gathered, Jesus showed up right in the middle of them. And they experienced something dynamically powerful, the peace of Christ, the physical wounds of Christ, the peace of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the mission of Christ. I believe John is intentionally giving us a rhythm that we will observe that will keep Jesus' identity and mission center to the church that will keep us on task, reminding us of who we are, reminding us even of why we gather. Now, I am the first one to admit, church is boring. Anybody else? How many times you come here? I'm bored. Straight up. It's good to be bored. That is a very normal thing. Life many times is very, very boring. We can forget, though, that we're not just here to go through the motions. We're not just here for a Bible study. Although Bible study is great, we want to know Scripture, we want to learn Scripture, we want to grow deep in our understanding of Scripture and application of Scripture. We are here to meet with the risen Lord. We come with expectation that when we gather together, Jesus himself shows up with healing power. That we actually experience the peace of Christ. Church, it's not accidental that we begin each of our gatherings with this offer, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Each week we gather, the peace of Christ is proclaimed over this community. It is our invitation to apply that peace of Christ to our lives. Are we doing that? Are we engaging with the presence of the Lord Jesus who offers us his peace? Each time we gather, whether it's song, sermon, or sacrament here at the table, we are reminded of the one who gave himself for us. We are reminded of his wounds, of his stripes by which we are healed. 
Are we responding to that invitation from the Lord Jesus himself to apply his work to our lives? To bring hope to our fears, to bring forgiveness to our failures, to bring healing to our deep hurt and pain. The Lord is in the midst of us with his peace, with the power of the work of his cross, here to fill us up once again with his spirit and to send us out as witnesses. We have seen the Lord. That's why we gather on the first day of the week, even early in the morning. That's why we do it. Because we believe that Jesus shows up in our midst and that we experience the presence of the resurrected Christ. See, as the church gathers together on the first day of the week, we are in some sense rehearsing the story of that first Easter Sunday when Jesus appeared to his disciples. We are expecting that the same risen Jesus will appear in our midst, not in physical form, of course, but by his spirit to reassure us of his presence that brings peace to the varied circumstances of our lives and the weight of the world that we carry. Well, we are reminded, again, of, through song and sermon and sacrament of his victory that he has brought. These truths strengthen us. We are filled with the spirit and sent out. This is the rhythm that John, the apostles, meant for the early church Gather, scatter. Gather, build ourselves up in the most holy faith, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in our hearts. That's what we're doing. And then we scatter in mission and in witness. You guys have heard me quote many times from Leslie Newbegin. Uh, in Michael Goheen's book, The Church and His Vocation, Leslie Newbegin writes this. He says, basically, the church's focus is twofold. There's the inner life of worship and fellowship in gathered congregations, and then there's the outer life of mission scattered in the world. Newbegin says this, the first duty is to strengthen and make more real the citizenship of God's people in the kingdom of God in word and sacrament, in prayer and communion, and an ever deeper rooting in Christ. And if the church fails to do this, it is liable to become salt without savor. The second duty is to involve itself more and more deeply in the affairs of the world in suffering as it bears witness to the life of Christ. He goes on to say, on Monday through Saturday, people carry out their task of faithful witness. And then Sunday is the day on which the church makes a necessary withdrawal from its engagement with the world in order to renew the inner springs of the divine life within her through word and sacrament. This is what we're doing. We're gathering together 
living into, leaning into this life in the name of Jesus, drinking deeply from His Spirit, from His life, in order to carry it out into the world, these vessels of the Spirit of God, so that others might experience life in the name of Jesus. This is why John has written this gospel, that the church might live into its identity, a people who live in the name of Jesus, and that they would scatter to the ends of the world with this identity, this mission, and this power to live out life in the name of Jesus, that others might experience this as well. Oh, I believe John was encouraging the early Christians that they would continue to center their communal life together around the person of Jesus so that his identity and mission might continually be made manifest in the world. That they would gather, as they did at that first Easter morning, with expectation that Jesus would show up in their midst, give his peace, show his wounds, bring deep joy to their lives. By the way, I completely missed over that point, or passed over that point. The disciples experienced deep joy, it says, as they experienced Jesus. They're empowered and sent out to declare the victory of the risen Lord in order that God's great offer of life in Jesus' name might be offered each day, each hour, to men and women boys and girls who are deeply hungering and thirsting for God. Church, get to the gathering on Sunday morning. That's John's exhortation to us. If you're online and you've gotten comfortable, there's something here for you. The risen Jesus is here in the midst of us. He wants to make himself known in the gathering of his people. He wants to give us an identity with him as we gather and scatter, empowering us to continue his work until he comes. Now, as we end our time together in worship, we have this opportunity this morning to do exactly what I've been saying, to behold his hands and his side, to remember his wounds, to remember that the bread represents his body that was broken for us, that the cup represents his blood that was shed for our sins, that we might live in this new dynamic with God in his identity, in his mission, in his power. And so I invite you, church, come to the table this morning, recalibrate yourself around this identity, mission, and purpose that is in Jesus. Come, eat and drink and be filled up with the life of God and then scatter with this proclamation. Life in the name of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven you for Jesus' sake. This is what God desires to do as we gather together, to fill us up, to send us out that we might be poured out. So come to the table.